Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning and uh, sense the very sweet, uh, sweet spirit among us this morning in our worship time. And uh, wow, what a joy that is to see you pouring your hearts out to the Lord, our God, our Savior. So we are in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Uh, we were there last week and we covered most of the chapter last week. And we learned from that passage that the difference, sometimes the difference between uh, having a mind of man and having your mind set on the things of God is is hard. And we learned that lesson from Peter. And it's in that passage that Peter, um, excuse me for one second. Got it. Just drop it. So it's in that passage that Peter is rebuked by Jesus because when Jesus tries to or begins to prepare his disciples for his departure, Peter will have none of it. And so Jesus, um, actually, Peter rebukes Jesus and basically says, that's not going to happen. Hold on one second, because I'm not only are you distracted, but I'm distracted. So that's never good. Right. Let me just get this straight. Um, so Peter pulls Jesus to the side and he rebukes Jesus and and basically says, this is not going to happen. This suffering thing, this death thing, that's not going to happen. And that's where Jesus gives Peter some pretty harsh words and says, your, your thoughts are so fleshly that Satan's behind them. And you're thinking along the same lines as Satan would. And your, your thoughts are so fleshly and they're so off the kingdom perspective that if if we followed through with what you had to say, the whole plan of redemption wouldn't even take place. It's absurd. It's ludicrous. So there's this great clash going on here. And Peter's a true disciple. But right before that rebuke, Peter did something monumental where I can just see Jesus, you know, grabbing him by the shoulders and looking him in the eye and say, Wow. He does something monumental. And what he does, and we'll read about it, is he makes this great confession of Christ. Very, very powerful confession. In fact, this is a passage uh, that we have to wrestle with a little bit this morning. I can't promise you I can do it justice because it is, it is rather complex. But we're going to wrestle with it this morning. And this is a passage where Jesus blesses Peter for this confession that he makes. And it, and it appears that he appoints him as uh, king of the church, leader of the church, that, that has the power to let people in and out of heaven or to let people in or keep people out. And then he, he talks about giving him the cre- uh, keys and he talks about building his church on, church on the rock, which is the rock Peter. And then he talks about uh, the gates of hell. And so all this is this powerful statement. It's almost like um, Jesus benights Peter. To be a leader, a special leader in the church. And if you know your theology and denominations, you'll know that it's this passage that the Catholics base their whole church doctrine on as far as the papacy goes. So we got to find out what is the rock that Jesus is building his church upon? Is it Peter? And what are these gates of hell that won't prevail? What about this key, the key stuff to the kingdom? I mean, is that do we all need keys? What are we going to do with this? So let's read our passage in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We want to look at this at precept upon precept, if you will. And first we find Peter's confession. So how did all this happen? Well... Jesus, as you know, has turned his attention primarily to his disciples. He's been training them. He's been preparing them because, of course, Jesus knows what is to come. And the fact is, he's not going to be around much longer. And in this in this historical scene, they are actually on their way up north. They're on the way to Caesarea Philippi. It's a Roman city. And so they're on this dusty road to the Roman city. And it's way up north in the kingdom of Israel. And you have heard in the Old Testament the expression many times from Dan to Beersheba, from Dan to Beersheba. And that's an expression that says uh, that, that defines the boundaries of the kingdom. All the way up north, you have Dan and all the way to the southernmost part, you have Beersheba. And there's everything in between is the kingdom. And so they are way up north. And the farther up north you go um, in the kingdom, the closer you are to the line of heathendom, if you will. So you have the Israelites on this side and pagans all on the outside of the borders. And uh, actually, before you even got to the northern border, there were primarily a Gentile population. There are still some Jews there, but this is by this time, it's primarily a Gentile population. So that's kind of the the the, the geographical setting of where they are. There's paganism, worship and, and things like that there. Jesus has been working with his disciples for about two years now. And it's his intention to, in a sense, of course, with the power of the Holy Spirit, to hand them the reins. They are to carry on the mission of preaching the good news and establishing the kingdom. That's what they're called to do. That's what he's been trained them to do. And so, in essence, in this passage, what he does is he gives them a final exam. They have this test that they have to pass. He has to know something from them to see if they are ready for this task. And it's a, it's a two-question final exam, your favorite kind, right? And the first kind kind of really, the first question sets up the second question. If they fail this question, of course they don't because otherwise we wouldn't be here today. But anyway, um, if they fail this question seriously... The, the kingdom and Jesus's plans would be in doubt because who would he leave it to? So he asked this question first. This isn't the one that they can fail. Who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? It's a very important question. By that time, 
Jesus was the kind of guy, just like in any culture, when, when something extraordinary or say an extraordinary person is introduced to you or comes into your culture, you got to deal with it, like it or not. And Jesus was of the caliber of the caliber of a person. He said things and he did things that were not ordinary at all. And so you had to wrestle with that. You had to draw conclusions. What do I do with this person? I recently listened to a little testimony from Keith Green. Keith Green was a hippie back in the 60s and then the 70s. He was a very talented uh, musician. Eventually, he gave his his life to the Lord and he used his musical talents for for the Lord. Very powerful. But in his testimony, you know, in the the, um, 60s, early 70s, he was a seeker. He was a searcher and he really wanted this peace, you know, peace, love and drugs. Ah, There's peace out there. There's love out there. I'd like some of that. I want some of that. And he says he was born Jewish, uh, ethnically, but his parents attended the Christian Science Church. And he described the Christian Science Church like grape nuts. They're neither grapes nor are they nuts. Um, the Christian Science Church is neither Christian nor is it science. But so he's searching out there uh, for peace. And he's doing everything that the hippies did in that day to find it. They were taking drugs and they got this really good, peaceful feeling. They thought maybe this is the way, you know, this is. This is pretty good, and but there were also a lot of um, near e- or, or uh, far eastern. The New Age movement was prevalent, and peace was promised through meditation and and worship of Buddha and Nirvana and stuff. So there was a, there was really a, an aggressive movement to try to find the peace and harmony and the love that is in society. And he was a part of that, and he did the drugs. He said, "I did the drugs." The high wore off, it didn't last, and, and I was questioning everybody. Yeah, I was some, I was trying out these gods and these major religions to find out where I can get this peace and love. So I would interview them and talk to them, and, and, um, I, I found something in common that all of the major religions had. And I'd talk to a Muslim, and they'd talk about Allah, but they also talked about the prophet Jesus. And then, uh, the, the Hindus would talk about reincarnation and and how we're all reincarnated and Jesus was reincarnated as well and he's an important person and then the um the buddhists talk about Jesus being reincarnated and he's just another god kind of like a little buddha and so the thing that he found in common from all these major religions is well they got their own gods but all of them seem to think very highly of this man Jesus so let me just see what Jesus has to say about himself where are you going to find that well, he goes to the bible Man, if he's so important with even these major religions, let me see what he has to say about himself. And lo and behold, he reads what Jesus has to say about himself. And he finds out that Jesus doesn't just say, well, I am another option or I am another kind of God and you can find truth by me. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And there is no other way to the father but by me. And those words, those seeds were planted when he read that for, for himself. And he continued to question. But a few years later, he gave his, his life to Christ. When, we, when we're assaulted by these kind of things, introduced to these kind of things, or say a person like Christ, we have to figure out what do we do with that? When something comes into our world that's no longer natural, but supernatural. And so the people in Jesus's day had to figure out what they're going to do with him 
as well. By the way, we're all confronted with the same question. What do we do with this man, Jesus? Who is he? So Jesus says, what's the word on the streets? Who people say that I am? How are they processing me? So the disciples answer that question. And uh, we know that um, some of the Jewish rulers had already given their explanation for how Jesus could be so extraordinary and have these supernatural powers. Their explanation was, well, he's from the devil. You know, you work from the devil, you work for the devil, you get the devil's powers. That's why he can do what he can do. But there were others that knew that, no, there's something special about this guy. I mean, he, they're, they're. And so some of them believed that he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's one, that's one theory going around the streets. And that was Herod's conclusion. He's John the Baptist. The reason they believe that he might be John the Baptist is because his message is the same. Repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so the message is the same as John the Baptist. And the way that they could reconcile or explain his supernatural powers is, well, when you're raised, when you rise from the dead, you have supernatural powers. And that's why he can do it, because he's a resurrected kind of guy, John the Baptist. And another theory was, no, he's Elijah. And the prophet Malachi prophesied that as a forerunner of um, the Messiah, Elijah would be resurrected. And he would come and he would introduce the world to the Messiah. In some way, he would come back to life, come back from heaven. So some people think, no, this must be Elijah. And that explains his powers because he also has been resurrected. And he has a message about the Messiah to come. And others say, no, he's Jeremiah. He's a prophet, Jeremiah. Now, where does that come from? Well, during the intertestament time, which we would know of as the 400 years of silence, so the end of the Old Testament before the New Testament starts, it was 400 years of silence in the sense that God did not speak forth through a prophet. There were no longer any prophets, prophets saying, thus saith the Lord, and here's what God's going to do, and so forth. It was all old information. So 400 years of silence. But it wasn't 400 years of inactivity. It was a very active historical period. A lot was going on in Israel. And this is the, the era of um, when the apocryphal, apocrypha books were written. They're not in our Bibles. They're in Catholic Bibles, and that's for another time, that explanation. But they're basically very interesting stories and legends of things that took place in this era. And some of it's true and some of it's not. But um, this was also the era of the Maccabees, if you've heard the Maccabees. So there's a lot of turmoil going on. But the the, the the story was that Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the prophet, before the Babylonians came in at 586 and sacked Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he took the ark out and the altar of incense and he hid it somewhere. And, and the legend is that right before the Messiah comes back, he's going to go take, he's going to rise from the dead, come back from heaven or wherever he is, some kind of way. He's going to take these items and put them back in the temple to herald the coming of the Messiah. And then others said, I don't really know who he is, he's, but he's a prophet. He's a man of God. He's a holy God. He's a holy guy. I know that much. So these are the kind of things that they're having to wrestle with. How, how does Jesus fit into their worldview and even their understanding of Scripture? 
But there's two things that all of these theories have in common. One is that he gets his, whoever this guy is, he gets his powers from being risen from the dead. And second, that whoever he is, he's some kind of herald and forerunner for the Messiah. But none of them say that he is the Messiah. So their, their conclusion as they fit Jesus into the worldview and reconcile him with their understanding of Scripture is that, no, he's not the Messiah, but he is this close to being the Messiah. So they came close, some of them, in their conclusions. But marbles and horseshoes count with closeness, right? But not theology. So really, every one of their conclusions is wrong. None of them concluded that he was indeed the promised Messiah. They didn't understand the magnitude of who was standing in front of them. The magnitude of who it was that was doing these miracles and speaking these words. And I would surmise as I think about this whole picture is that it is a failure. How can you, how can you in one sense know so much about God and yet miss Him? And I know that some of it has to do with hardening their hearts in sin. But some of it has to do with refusing the whole counsel of God. Because what happened in that day and age is through the years, the Jews had concentrated on the prophecies that described the Messiah as this great, majestic military leader, a powerful man, and he was going to come sent by God, and he was going to smash all his enemies, and he was going to reestablish his kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. It would be obvious to everybody. They would take up their swords and fight with him. And it was all promised. And so they had in their minds very strongly what he was supposed to look like. And he wasn't fitting their biblical description. The problem was they had selective hearing, just like the disciples. The disciples had selective hearing when Jesus said, I'm going to go and suffer and die and rise again. They didn't even hear the rise again part. They just, that's why none of them were at the tomb. So we, we, we have this tendency to zero in on certain things. They, they zeroed in on this military guy. And so they neglected the other prophecies about the suffering servant and, and the humility part and being born in little, little insignificant ways and things and having to flee. That, that didn't fit their description. So it's, it's a danger not to look at the whole counsel of God. And even today, we have to be careful because the church can get fixed on one attribute, say love, for instance, and neglect the other attributes of God. And then we don't even really recognize them and know them. It's the importance of the whole counsel of God. So the word on the street. Who is Jesus? He's one of these people. We all have to answer that same question. Who is Jesus? And. Our answer is right or wrong, and it determines our eternal destiny. But their final exam is this. Okay, so I, I get how they have reconciled me. But he looks at his disciples. It's a pass or fail question. He looks at his disciples and says, Who do you, who do you say that I am? What is your gut telling you? 
How are you processing in your mind? How are you feeling in your body? What kind of conclusions as you wrestle with what you're seeing and you're thinking, wait a minute, is this even real? Is it even possible? Where have you landed in all of this? You tell me. Who do you think I am? And I'm sure through the years they wrestled with it like everybody else. Yeah, who is he? I think he is. No, he's not. Maybe he is Elijah. You know, is he John the Baptist risen from the dead? So they wrestled with these things. They had to reconcile it in real life. They struggled and they sweat and they passed and they failed and different things in trying to understand them. And sometimes they thought they understood them and they were way off track. But in the end, they answer this question and Peter speaks for all of them. They've landed. And he says... You're the Christ, son of the living God. That's their conclusion. Peter's the spokesperson now. You know, impulsive Peter. He's the first one to talk all the times, right or wrong. He asked all the disciples. And they absolutely nail it with this. They nailed the answer. I mean, A plus, 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 plus with smiley face on it. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the king that's going to set up his kingdom forever. You're the son of David. Jesus, you're the one that we've been reading about. You're the one that we've waited for, for century after century. You're the one we sing all our songs about. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This is a monumental moment for the kingdom and the plan of redemption. I think it's so interesting at this time in Jesus' response. He is excited, I think, that, that they know the truth. They got it. They, came, they wrestled with this on their own and they came that, well, well, yeah, they wrestled with They get the credit for wrestling with it on their own. They know it. It's deep in their hearts. And he gives them credit for the right answer. That's right. And you're blessed for it. But then he says, that answer that you came up with actually came to you from my Father who's in heaven. And, I, and I'm, you know, that doesn't even seem to fit in this passage because you expect him to slap all the disciples on the back. Huddle up, man. Well, you guys did it. Good job. Your hard work has really paid off. It's almost like he ruins it by saying... Good job, Peter. And guess where you got your right answer for the final exam? Father from heaven gave it to you. I think it's so interesting that Jesus takes his time. And it's so important to differentiate between man's abilities and God's ability. And they, they work hand in hand. But, but the final credit, it's important to Jesus to tell us here, the final credit for this spiritual enlightenment was that it was revealed to you. You actually, I know you wrestled with this, but you didn't come up with the final answer on your own. It had to be revealed to you. We, we, we asked the question, yeah, well, how did they get it right? And everybody else got it wrong. They had their theories and these guys get it right. How did that happen? And Jesus tells us. Didn't come from flesh and blood. That's not how it was revealed, but my Father who is in heaven. And we know the big picture is that our fallen nature uh, prevents us from seeing spiritual truths. 
And we, we're created in the image of God and we have tremendous abilities to do a lot of things in this world that serve good purposes. But we can't find God on our own. We're dead to the spiritual things. We're blinded or, or we're just our compass is off. We cannot do it. It has to be revealed to us. And I like the word revelation because, you know, revelation is the idea. It's the truth is always there. The truth about God's always there, but it's revealed to us. Sometimes our sin reveals it. Ignorance, whatever it is, it's revealed. But he he pulls the he pulls the curtain back. And all of a sudden you get to see what was always there to begin with. So this very important information that the disciples own as their own, and it is their own, was imparted to them by the grace of God. And so the credit goes ultimately straight to God as the source of all truth. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say... Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. In the Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone who the Son chooses to reveal Him. And I think it's just, it's important to Jesus for us to know that, that this information, this Life or death, information and knowledge is a gift from God. And the reason I think that's important is because if that's true, then where should we search for more truth? From revelation, from God's word, as opposed to now, if if this would have gone the other way and Jesus would have said, man, you good job. You looked inside yourself. You dug deep. You said yourself, truth, I know you're in there somewhere and you sh- and you got in the most uncomfortable position and you found it. What was within you? Then everybody would be looking within themselves to find the peace. Don't we have that promise today? There's other religions and secular beliefs that say, man, you just got to look within yourself. It's there. The true meaning and purpose of life. It's all right in here. But, you know, you got to give me money to figure it out. Or you got to read my book or you got to do these exercises or these poses or whatever it is you got to do. But what's in there? It's an empty promise. I love the way Jesus takes this moment to just point us to the grace of God. Everything I have comes from heaven. But his technique, of course, is to use human ability. But the final credit is that. My wrestling and my thinking and my struggling to come to this conclusion and answer this very important question about who is Jesus was revealed to me. But I get credit for it. I still get the salvation. I think someone said this morning, maybe it was in Sunday school, one of the promises of God, if you seek me, you will find me. Wow, that's incredible. So, yeah, seek him, press in, get to know, question like Keith Green did. Who's got the, the, the words of final authority here? It's grace that comes through human means. It became real in their souls because God made it real in their souls. He enabled them. And so, third, we see the, the rock here. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Simon bar Jonah bar meaning son of. So Simon, son of Jonah. That's his earthly name. When Jesus, when um, Peter's brother, well, when Andrew brings his brother Cephas to to Jesus, Jesus says, hey, Cephas, you're Peter. And he he gives he assigns him another name, which means rock. And so Jesus says, you are Peter, you're rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So what do we do with this? The big question is, what is the rock? What is the church built upon? I see three possibilities here. One is that he could be talking about Peter himself as the rock. One is that he could be speaking about a literal rock there. And the other is that he could be speaking about something Peter said, namely the confession that Peter made was the rock that the church is built upon. Well, is it the literal rock? I want to rule that one out because if Jesus is pointing to a literal rock and some people say the geography of this land in Caesarea Philippi and the, and, and the uh, little community of Petra uh, gives way to the possibility he's talking about a physical rock, which is huge and in that place. And I, I don't certainly don't think that's the rock that the church is built on because no structure was built on, nor is that the place that people gathered as an official gathering place to be the church. So we rule that out. Can't be taken literally. What about Peter? Is Peter the rock? Well, that's the position of Catholic theology. That's what their whole papacy is built on is this passage. Peter is the rock. He is the person assigned by Jesus with the task, with the office of being the head of the church. He's the king of the church. He's he's the king of heaven and earth. He's been given this incredibly Powerful, very important title. He's the the Papa of the church. He's the Pope. And um, the the Catholics would say he's crowned king of heaven. He's crowned king of the earth. And he is king of hell. He's got the keys to these kind of things. And all believers must be in communion with him as the head of the church. Because he has the keys to let you in or keep you out. And as Peter is the first head of the church or king of the church or Pope of the church... He has successors and through all the ages, we have had successors based on this belief up to modern day Pope Francis that you see on the news or read about today. And that is primarily built on this passage. And as the head of the church, what he says is equal to what you find written in the Bible. He speaks ex cathedra. He speaks for the mouth of God, the word of God. Books have been Books and books and volumes have been written on this topic. I'm going to try to keep it as brief and simple as possible. But uh, I would say, first of all, there's no way that Peter is the head of the church because we already know that Christ has been given that. By the way, just to show my colors, I don't believe, I don't want to pretend that I'm even entertaining the idea that this is true. So I don't want to. I don't want you to think, oh, is he going to take us over here and then back to here? No. I'm not even going to entertain the idea of this truth. So I'm just giving you some brief reasons why. But we already know in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul teaches us Christ is the head of the church. The church in and of itself already has a head. And Jesus was the one that came and died for the church and redeemed the church. And he's the one that's going to bring the church up to heaven. So we already have a, a base, powerful base of knowledge. So Peter had a strong personality and he'll make a fine leader. 
as well as the other apostles and as well as people today in the church. God calls people to be leaders. But Peter's fallible and so are all men. They're fallible. And I think if you read Scripture when it comes to making important decisions about hearing from God, what does God say, how do we interpret Scripture, He always calls for counsel. He doesn't call for the one man. If the one man speaks, it's only because he is speaking what God has told him to. It's not anything to do with it of himself. It, it, it's always about community. And so truth is to be understood in Christian community. We need each other. And I think the, the, the closer we are to one another, pressing in the, to the truth, the closer we are to understanding the mysteries that God has given us. So if it's not Peter, the person as the rock, then what is it? Well, the Protestant uh, view of this passage would understand it like this. The word for Peter and rock are two different words. And in essence, Jesus is making a contrast and he's saying, you're Peter like a stone, but this is a rock. And I'm building my church on a rock, not a stone. So some say they highlight the, the choice of words here. So then what is Jesus building the church on? The rock would be the confession. The rock would be the words that came out of Peter's mouth as a spokesman for all the disciples. That you are indeed the Christ, the anointed. You are indeed the Son of the living God. That's what the church is built upon. The foundation of a proper confession of Christ. That's what I was taught, and I believe that is fair, a fair way to um, interpret this passage and, uh, and a good way to interpret this passage. But I also believe that the apostles do play a very important part in the building of the church. And we do find this as Paul uh, unravels what the church even is. See, when Jesus says this, um, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. We don't really even know what the church is yet, right? Hadn't even been unraveled. Well, the apostles tell us what the church is and it develops later on. But the, the rock, the confession is the church and the apostles wind up playing a very important role in the foundation and the building of it in this way, Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you see that the apostles play a part in the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. But what part do they play? In what way are they serving as a foundation? Is it because of their office? Because that's what the Catholics believe. It's that office. It's that rank that has been given this man that puts him in this position. But I think the thing that what Scripture teaches is the foundation. What makes them foundation is what they teach. It's the words of God. That's what they share with their fellow saints. That's what the fellow saints are building their lives upon. It's still the word of God. So when they come together in Acts chapter 2, you know, the church is birthed. And, and now you see the spirit has been given. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to what? They come together, they're new believers, and they, vote, they devote themselves to the apostles, it says. Now, if it stopped there, then you would think, whoa, maybe Peter is the king. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what they're hungry for. That's what they want. That's what they're building their lives upon. 
So the apostles are a part of the package of the foundation because they are messengers of God. But the lives in the, of the church, the life of the church is built on the testimony of Christ. It's built on the person of Christ and the words of Christ. And don't let anybody separate those two things because they're one and the same. The church is built on the person of Christ and the word of Christ. That's how they are the foundation. And Christ is the cornerstone. He's the head. He's the cornerstone. And he is what holds every piece of the body of Christ together. He's what holds you and I together. He's what binds us in the unity of the spirit. It's Christ. He, he's, he's the boundary above all. He's at the top. He's at the bottom. He's in the middle. He's, he's everything. The word and the person of Christ. So that is the foundation. The truth of the word of God. And they, it was revealed to them and they confessed it and they professed it. First Corinthians 3, 10 through 11, Paul says that he laid the foundation. So he went from place to place and he's laying the foundation. And then others came after him and he says, and they built upon the foundation that I laid. So more revelation, more word of God coming to build it up. But then he says, but all are built on Christ. You see how it, it all interacts? It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful concept how Christ is building his church. And anything that's not built on Christ, Paul says, it's hay and stubble. The next storm, next Florence, it's washed down the drain. And then just practically speaking, so... I took a minute to, to, to try not to be influenced just by others. And I thought, OK, if you play this belief out that Peter's the king, do we see it recognized anywhere else in Scripture? I don't. And there were opportunities for Jesus to 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 recognize this again. So in Matthew 18 and 16, you know, disciples, they're human and they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, uh, who's going to be the greatest? Just kind of take a look at all of us. Which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom when it comes? And uh, that's when he gives them a little chastisement about the greatest being the least and so forth. But he, he could have said, uh, why are you guys even arguing? You already know I appointed Peter. He's the king. He's got the keys. Look, hanging on his belt. No need for you guys to argue about that. And then again in Matthew 20, when the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and the mom comes and, you know, kind of plants some, you know, mothers are, they want to plant seeds in people's minds so their sons can prosper. And wouldn't it be so nice in your kingdom when you bring it, Jesus, if uh, one of my sons could be on your right hand, sit there, and one of them could be on the left hand? I mean, that's a position of power. And Jesus didn't say, uh, <clears throat> Peter, you're going to hurt his feelings, you know. It, really, in Scripture, there were there were lots of opportunities to establish this as good truth to build your life on. Nobody got nobody really. I didn't see anybody in the church in the early church the whole time pictured in this way or apply it in this way. The fourth, the gates of hell. On this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what are the gates of hell and what are they trying to do? Just quickly, um, we understand today, you've heard the term church militant. You've heard the term church triumphant. The church militant is you and I. 
The church militant are those of us that are still here on the earth, which means we have to battle evil. That's our job. We have to battle it in our own hearts. We have to battle it in each other's hearts. We have to battle it everywhere. We have to fight against the, the schemes of the enemy. So we are the church militant. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do this. And he is establishing his kingdom. Church triumphant are those that have run their course. Those that have finished their race. Man, they have cashed in on the victory of Christ. So the church triumphant already exists up in heaven. The saints there were the church militant. But what is this? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Well, gates, it's, it's not really so much an assault, I don't think. If you think of, if you take this thought to task, a gate isn't a weapon. So like Satan does throw his fiery darts at us and so forth and he has weapons. But a gate isn't a weapon that he's, he's throwing his gate at the church and trying to beat down the walls of the church. A gate is something that either keeps somebody out or keeps somebody in. And I think what, what Jesus is saying here is, as Satan has been given power over death, you know, temporarily, and, and he takes, he can take people to show. But if you are a believer in Christ, if you have this confession that Peter and the apostles have, if you wrestle with it and you own that confession and you say you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the gates of hell cannot contain you, cannot keep you in. For those that do not believe in Christ, they will be kept down. But the, you, you will not be kept in just like Christ rose from the from the dead. The grave couldn't hold him. It's the promise here, the gates of hell. They're not going to prevail against you. You're busting out. And you get into the Apostle Paul's scripture about death. Where's your sting? And the early Christians had this attitude, a biblical attitude that I wish I could hold on to. That, you know what? Death really isn't that big of a deal. They went to their death. Some of them proudly and gladly went to their death. It's not that big of a deal because what can you do? And in our mind, we think, you know, the very worst thing I'm going to do, I'm going to kill you. That's the way I can get my the most vengeance possible to do you the absolute, the absolute most harm and hurt is to kill you, is to wipe you out. And there's a sense in which the Bible for Christians. OK. So you you cut my body. So you abuse my body. I get another one. I live forever. And the worst thing that can happen to me after this temporary pain is you just sent me through the door to heaven. There's this mindset here. The gates of hell will not prevail in that Satan will not hold the saints back. He won't hold the saints back from the job that God has given them, nor from their eternal destiny. And we're going to get banged up as the church militant. We are going to get banged up and scraped up. And I know many of us already have. Wounded. Calling out evil. Attacking evil in our own hearts. It can be painful. But the victory is ours. And then lastly, the kingdom keys. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that would look... That's pretty that's a pretty significant power, isn't it? How would you like to be given that power? If Jesus said to you, 
Uh, come over here. See this? This is the keys to the heaven. Kingdom of heaven. And I'm just giving you power and authority to bind things. Keep them still or let them loose. How do we understand this? Let me just wrap it up in a nutshell so we don't go on unnecessary rabbit trails. We already know how do you get to heaven? How do you go through the gates? You have to confess. You repent and you believe. You repent because you believe. You believe and therefore you repent. That's how you get into heaven. That's what the scripture teaches. That's the key. It's the confession. You have to be forgiven from your sins. There's no secret key hidden under your seat. You know, the bonus seat or something. One lucky person today gets a secret key. No matter how you live, you get to get into heaven. It's not that mysterious. So we already know. What's this binding stuff? Where's this authority coming from? Well, if the confession is the rock that the church is built on, that is solid truth, worshiping the right God in the right way. And that's how you get to heaven. The church actually has the authority to say, to, to determine, not to determine, but to recognize or to say who gets in and who gets out. In what way? Because Scripture has said, if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I can authoritatively say, if that's what you've done according to God's word, you're going to heaven. And I can authoritatively say, if you refuse to repent, you're going to hell. Based on what God has already spoken. And that's a pretty strong stance. That's an authority that the church has. And the world doesn't like it. Boy, are we being assaulted for any kind of absolutes today. As if, oh, you're saying this is it and that's all there is. The church has been given the authority to do that. Of course, it's based on God's word. So I can actually say to a person I'm sitting next to on the plane, you know, if, have you repented of your sin and confessed Christ as Lord? Well, no, I haven't. Then you're not going to heaven. And he can get pretty upset at me and say, who are you? Well, I believe in this God or I do all these works. The church has that authority. The beautiful thing, and I think the takeaway in all of this, is, is wrestling with who Jesus is and knowing that he really is a king and he is establishing a kingdom and we're a part of it. And we're, we're the bricks and the mortar that Christ is holding together and enlightening and empowering, yes, in, in supernatural ways to bring about His purpose. And that our lives would be so attractive that others would come and want to worship the King and get on board. We have the message that brings people back to their Creator, back into paradise. Let's be responsible with it. By all means, let us thank God. Not be proud and arrogant how much we dug in to know Him. But just thank Him and give Him the credit for His grace in our lives. I would not be here. I wouldn't say what I'm able to say if it had not been gifted to me by the grace of God. And it's the same with you. May God be honored and blessed at the preaching of His Word.